You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 2. The Essence of Mercy An initial thought to ponder. Please listen to the song Mercy Now by Mary Gauthier. There's a video of a live performance on YouTube, and I'm sure the song will be available elsewhere too. Does it seem to you as though too many of our modern social interactions lack the mercy that we so deeply need? Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus highlights many features of mercy, and in the context of Luke's larger narrative, shows mercy to be a key ingredient in Jesus' recipe for human flourishing. We'll see many more examples of mercy throughout this book that share three essential features with the story of Zacchaeus. Those three features are summed up in this definition. Mercy is a gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion. Mercy is a gift of extreme kindness, motivated by compassion. My definition differs significantly from how the word is often used. More commonly, people use mercy to describe the leniency shown by someone in a position of power. They imagine a sword fight in which one combatant has been knocked to the ground. The victor's sword point is dramatically poised above the fallen one's neck. Will the loser be dispatched, or will the victor show mercy? Or they imagine a courtroom. The charges have been laid, the evidence weighed, and the verdict pronounced, guilty as charged. In a final plea, the guilty party throws themselves on the mercy of the court. Will the just punishment be pronounced, or will the judge show clemency? These archetypes of mercy on the battlefield and in the courtroom have been passed on to us from ancient literature, like the return of Ulysses in Homer's Odyssey, to modern storytelling like the 2000 movie Gladiator. They are shown in real-life cases such as Adolf Eichmann's trial after World War II and the trial for drug transportation of the so-called Bali Nine in Indonesia. What links those two images together is the idea of letting someone off the hook. In both cases, one party has failed. They have been insufficiently skilled in the fight or found to be morally blameworthy. They've lost, and their fate depends on another. That other is always depicted as physically higher, standing over the fallen combatant or elevated behind the judge's bench, to emphasise that they hold all the power. In some religious contexts, mercy is a synonym for almsgiving, that is, for charitable acts towards the poor and needy. That too suggests a power imbalance between the magnanimous giver and the pitiable receiver. The appendix to this book 
delves into various conceptions of mercy in more detail, but my primary aim is to explore a conception that I think more accurately reflects the portrayal in the Bible, and that generates deeper insight into the transformative potential of mercy today. A better starting point for understanding mercy than the battlefield or courtroom is to consider its position within the ecology of love. In a natural ecology, plants, animals, soil, air, rain and sunshine operate in synergy with each other. The health of the whole depends on the interactions between all the components. In the same way, mercy, pity, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, grace, clemency, justice, humility, empathy, generosity, caring, friendship, faithfulness and love all jointly contribute to the practice of healthy interpersonal relationships and social cohesion, as well as to our understanding of God. We can think of this whole network of concepts as the ecology of love that sustains all life. We must not, however, mistake mercy for the whole of that ecology. Mercy is always a manifestation of love, but although love provides the context for mercy, not every expression of love is an act of mercy. The romantic notion of falling in love, for instance, bears little or no relation to mercy. We don't fall in love with someone because they are needy, and we are able to offer them leniency from some position of superiority, or at least I hope nobody does that. Putting aside that romantic meaning of love, many other expressions of love are also outside the category of mercy. For instance, when we say we love God, we are not claiming to show mercy to God. Children may bring their mother breakfast in bed because of their love, but that's not mercy. When we think of God as merciful, the idea springs from God's fundamental nature of love. Mercy is not the whole of God's love, though it is an important, perhaps even the most important, expression of it. Mercy includes God's compassion for our suffering, God's posture of grace that blossoms into kindness, and God's non-coercive generosity towards us. Which brings us back to Zacchaeus and to my non-standard definition of mercy. In the actions of Jesus towards Zacchaeus, we see God's compassion blossoming into a surprising act of non-coercive generosity to someone who does not appear to deserve it. Let's look more closely then at the three essential features of mercy, that it is motivated by compassion, that it is an unconditional gift, and that it is an extreme or surprising form of kindness. Subheading, Mercy is Motivated by Compassion My definition positions compassion as the motivation, the impulse, or the fuel behind acts of mercy. Mercy is a gift of extreme kindness, motivated by compassion. Compassion is a heartfelt or gut-level yearning for another's well-being, which starts with being truly able to notice them, not to look past them, but to see them as a real person. Through this attentive seeing, you become more able to perceive the brokenness of the person's situation. You witness their suffering, their injury, guilt, shame, grief or misfortune, or simply their need for food, companionship, shelter, etc. Having seen, compassion moves you from being a dispassionate observer to someone who feels for that person and who wishes something better for them. I like the linguistic movement from dispassion to compassion. Whereas dispassion means detached and undisturbed, the etymology of compassion relates to suffering with. 
To truly see another person is no longer to be detached from or unaffected by their suffering. You are stirred inwardly with a yearning for the one in need. This is easier in some cases than others. We find it easier to feel compassion for those close to us, family members and friends rather than strangers. When we perceive that a person's suffering is undeserved, we are more likely to feel compassion for them than when it seems they brought on the suffering by their own choices. An act of mercy occurs when those precursors of compassion in our mind and heart are converted into action. Compassion does not always lead to mercy. Sometimes we can feel compassion for someone but be unwilling or unable to do anything about it. Our unwillingness may be simply hypocrisy, as James wrote, quote, If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what's the good of that? It is dead faith, according to James chapter 2, 15-16. There are, however, situations where we are not unwilling, but rather unable, to act on our compassion. This has become increasingly common in a globalised world where we see on TV and the internet a hundred different examples of human need every day. We see the need, feel compassion, and yet we cannot act to meet even 1% of that need. Some may ask, but can't I act with compassion? Can't I feel merciful? Well, that semantic difference depends on your personal language usage. Some people do indeed use compassion to refer to actions rather than an inner yearning. Some people do use mercy emotively in forms like, I'm feeling merciful today. But to use the words as clearly as possible, I invite people to accept the distinction I'm making, at least while reading this book. That allows me to separate the feeling from the action without labouring the point repeatedly. True mercy is never founded on any motivation other than compassion. Suppose two people meet a group of refugees dying from thirst. One responds, out of compassion, by providing tankers of water at their own expense. The other, seeing a commercial opportunity, provides similar tankers of water, but finds a way to profit financially in the process. It's the same act, but because of differing motivations, the former is an act of mercy, while the latter is not. Of course, the motivations for any decision or behaviour are complex mixtures, often unconscious and often self-serving. It's impractical to judge whether any human action arises purely from compassion. We can hardly evaluate our own motivations accurately, let alone those of others. But at least in theory, if not in practice, the inner mechanism that drives mercy is compassion, however much the purity of that motivation might be muddied by other factors. God may be the only one whose mercy is motivated purely by compassion rather than self-interest. Although compassion and pity are often used as synonyms, I avoid using the word pity because it has such a strong connotation of looking down on someone contemptuously. By emphasising moral superiority, pity maintains the distance between people, whereas compassion and mercy draw us together. As Friedrich Nietzsche pointed out, pity demeans the receiver by implying that they are not able to deal with their own suffering. To show pity takes away the possibility of the sufferer learning and growing through their suffering. The phrase motivated by compassion establishes the social context for mercy. To speak of compassion implies someone experiencing a need and someone noticing that need. 
Compassion implies an internal, often empathic sorrow that becomes the motivation to act for the good of the other. Subheading. Mercy is a gift. One of the challenges for actions motivated by compassion is how to avoid them being patronising reinforcements of a power imbalance. How can one act in mercy without implying that we are the magnanimous rescuer of some poor wretch? I'll return to that question several times in this book, and I'll underline the importance of humility. Mercy operates from a stance of solidarity, that is, an understanding of our shared humanity and a recognition that we all need each other. We all need mercy and are all able to show mercy. An important reason why the giving and receiving of mercy is problematic in our culture is that we are so deeply influenced by a transactional view of interpersonal relationships. By transactional, I mean the mindset in which there must always be an exchange. For everything we give, we expect to receive something in return. We go to the shops expecting to take home some food in exchange for giving the shop owner some money. We go to work giving our time and expertise in the expectation that we'll be rewarded with a weekly salary. Both parties expect to receive something of equal or greater value to them than what they give, and when that does not occur, feel either cheated or indebted to the other. We apply the same transactional thinking to non-financial contexts as well. When someone invites us to their home for dinner, we feel obliged to reciprocate or return the favour by inviting them to our home for dinner. When someone drops our kids off at school, we try to balance the books by looking after their dog when they go away for a weekend. Transactional thinking is conditional. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. I'll forgive you, but only after you say sorry. I'll wash the dishes today, but I expect you to do it tomorrow. You'd better be good, or Santa won't bring you any presents. In a world dominated by such thinking, the most radical contribution of mercy is that it is non-transactional and non-conditional. Mercy is a gift that does not result from debt. Mercy is never a repayment of something previously done for us, nor a responsibility that falls on us because we owe something to the other person. Mercy can never be demanded. It can only be given freely. Conversely, mercy does not incur any debt either. Mercy is a gift that does not need to be repaid, and in many cases cannot be repaid. Mercy can never be coercive, as though my goodness to you could force you to do something in return. To the extent that such an exchange occurs, it ceases to be mercy. We all engage in transactional and non-transactional behaviour, but living a life of mercy means giving greater space to the non-transactional, so that over time it increasingly crowds out the transactional. Defining mercy as a gift is a challenging idea in the face of philosophical debates about the impossibility of any pure gift. Let's look briefly at why the idea of a gift is contentious. French anthropologist Marcel Mauss, from 1872 to 1950, published a book in 1925 titled The Gift, The Form and Reason for Exchange in Archaic Societies. In that book, he described gift exchange practices across several cultures and noted that gift-giving predated other forms of economic activities. Mauss documented three crucial features of gift-giving in those cultures. The socialised obligation to give, 
the obligation to receive, and the obligation to reciprocate. French postmodernist Jacques Derrida, who lived 1930 to 2004, subsequently affirmed Mao's study, but claimed that the gift speaks of everything but the gift. By this he meant that if there are obligations to exchange gifts, then they cease to be gifts at all. Quote, for there to be a gift, there must be no reciprocity, return, exchange, counter-gift or debt. End quote. Consequently, the practices Maus had documented were not, in fact, examples of gifts. In Derrida's view, true gifts are impossible. There is no such thing as a free gift because all supposed gifts imply obligations. We are all aware of false gifts, gifts that are actually payments or rewards, gifts that come with strings attached. We're not fooled by retailers who distribute, quote, free gift vouchers, unquote. But does the abundance of such false gifts mean that no true gift can be given? In claiming that gifts are impossible, Derrida is not saying that is the end of the story. On the contrary, as John Caputo and Michael Scanlon note in a commentary on Derrida, quote, everything interesting for Derrida is impossible. Being impossible is what ignites our passion, gets us off dead centre and drives our desire to make it happen, end quote. Having met Derrida in 1998, I can personally testify to that observation. At the time, I was writing a master's thesis on the topic of forgiveness while lecturing at the University of Natal in South Africa. Although the thesis was never completed, the experience clarified my own thinking about the relational, social, psychological, legal, religious and philosophical aspects of forgiveness, and in a sense laid the foundation stones for this current book. Derrida delivered a lecture at my university titled Forgiving the Unforgivable. I introduced myself to him after the lecture, and he was kind enough to listen to the ideas I was working on. In his view, we misuse the label forgiveness for relational mishaps that are too trivial to really need forgiving. In fact, the idea of forgiveness only becomes relevant when something is truly unforgivable. But at that point, forgiveness can no longer be applied. For Derrida, the notion of both gift and forgiveness suffer from internal inconsistencies that make them rationally impossible. Regardless of how impossible gift, forgiveness or mercy may seem to reason, and regardless of how much we misunderstand them or spoil their purity, they're nevertheless part of our human experience. In my own understanding, gifts tend asymptotically towards an ideal. Every actual gift falls short of the ideal, but for any difference you might point out between an example of gift and the ideal, there will be another example closer to the ideal. For all practical purposes, actually occurring events come as close to the ideal of a gift as you could ever want. That observation makes any argument about the impossibility of a true gift irrelevant. Certainly our human acts of mercy may all be tainted with other less than noble motives. Even when our attempts to bless others are unalloyed with self-interest, we may receive something in return. That may have nothing to do with our ability to give freely, but with the recipient's inability to receive. As we shall see later, the ideal of pure mercy is demonstrated by God in Christ. Followers of Jesus are called to imitate that mercy, and the fact that we do so only imperfectly does not detract from the ideal. 
A wonderful example of a simple gift that comes close to the ideal is recounted by Paul Salopek. Salopek set out from Ethiopia in 2013, intending to walk 21,000 miles to the southern tip of Chile. While in Uzbekistan, he recorded this incident. Quote, The Fagana sky is waxy, overcast and cold. The sun hangs dully in it, a pale cocoon. On the frozen road ahead strives Tolik Beknizalov, our lanky donkey driver, a taciturn nomad. At some old trailside camp, he must have noticed me squinting with book-ruined eyes, toiling to spear a licked thread, the cheapest nylon, not silk, through the eye of a needle, perhaps mending my coat. Soon we will part ways at a new border, and I will discover many days later, shaking my head in wonder, that he has threaded and knotted every needle in my sewing kit. End of quote. The donkey driver was a travelling companion for only a brief time. His simple act of kindness was performed in secret, with no expectation of reward. Surely he knew that Salopek would not discover the threaded needles until after they had parted. There was virtually no chance that they would ever meet again, and whatever joy he experienced was found in the act of kindness itself, not in anything that Salopek might give in return. It was a simple gift, with no preconditions, no debt to repay, and without expectation that he would even be thanked. There were threads in the needles, but there were no strings attached to the gift. Such examples are not rare, although it may seem that way within the economy of exchange that dominates patriarchal thinking. As Derrida admits, and Jean-Luc Marion emphasises, it is only within that economy of exchange that gifts are impossible. While they muddle around trying to find the right way to account for the gift as an impossible concept, I'm more convinced by the approach of Genevieve Vaughan, who points out that outside the economy of exchange, there is a parallel economy of gift familiar to every mother. The mothering role has always relied on non-calculating response to a child's needs. A mother holding a baby at her breast gives milk freely, without any expectation of payment or reward. Fathers and others can also care for children in this way, but the pattern is shown archetypically by mothers. Those parental interactions precede any historical social expression of transactional exchange, and our personal experience of receiving a gift precedes any sense of payment or debt psychologically. If that parental attitude had been sufficiently valued, Vaughan suggests we might now think of ourselves as fundamentally homo donans, the humans who give, rather than homo sapiens, and what a world of difference that would make. From a theological perspective, God's mothering of us is perhaps the most fruitful image of the genesis of mercy. I'll say more about that connection in the later section on the Hebrew word racham, but I want to dwell here for a while to emphasise the importance of Vaughan's account of gift-giving. We've become so enmeshed in the transactional way of interacting, as required by an exchange economy, that we forget our fundamental dependence on gifts. In an economy, the primary social act is the exchange of goods or services. This may be a direct exchange, I give you a chicken and you give me a kilogram of potatoes, or an exchange mediated by money, I give you a chicken, 
you give me $5 and I know I can exchange that money for a kilogram of potatoes in a subsequent transaction. Every object and service is valued according to what it can be exchanged for. Embedded in a world driven by exchange, we easily start to think that the many expressions of love must also involve exchange, that expressions of love incur a debt to be repaid, that kindness is conditional, that mercy must be deserved, that forgiveness must be earned. But think of all the gifts we receive. Putting aside birthday presents and the like, consider the gifts of light, air, warmth, birdsong, potatoes, scents, and flavours that the earth gives us, all for free. We touch, take such things for granted, as givens, as simply being there in the background of our lives. They are present to us with or without our attention. They are presents to us without any requirement that we give in return. They are gifts from creation that reflect the givingness of the Creator. Consider the gift of language, of words, meanings and sentence structures that enable an infinite variety of communication. We do not earn or pay for language, but as children we receive it as a free gift from our families. Consider the gifts of wonder, insight and joy given to us by art, music and poetry. Of course, books, music and art can be sold to us, but I'm not talking about how access to those things can be controlled through exchange. I'm talking about how the story itself, the painting itself, or the photo, the song, the movie, the poem, all give us something, whether that be an emotion, a memory, or a new idea. Like many aspects of life, such experiences come to us freely, unilaterally, without any possibility of us paying back. Consider the gifts of unpaid labour, of volunteers who deliver meals on wheels, of homemakers who cook clean and create welcoming spaces, of counsel and comfort from friends. In an exchange economy, all such gifts are discounted. They are not undervalued, but literally not counted in economic measures. But the exchange economy could not operate without that substrate of gift-giving. The apparent necessity of exchange is an illusion that acts as a curtain behind which is hidden the myriad gifts that enable human flourishing. The exchange economy and the transactional thinking that is inextricably linked to it is driven by what each party deserves, that is, on what is earned by the perceived value of things being exchanged. Whatever I give, I deserve to receive something back of at least equal value. If I pay $50 for a massage, then I deserve to receive $50 worth of massaging services. If I work for a day, then I have earned a fair day's wages. In contrast, a gift economy operates on the basis of needs rather than deserts. The exchange economy is parasitic on the underlying gift economy. The former could not operate without the latter, but the narrative power of the exchange economy makes the host it devours appear of no value. Giving freely, without any demand for payment or imposition of debt, seems like an irrational weakness, an exception to the rule. The truth, however, is that the gift economy is the natural, sustaining reality of life. 
assumptions from exchange economies have come to dominate much of our thinking, including much of our so-called Christian theology. In part, this book is an attempt to undermine that influence by promoting a gift-based theology of mercy. Our decision to offer this book freely to anyone who requests it is an attempt to make the possibility of a gift economy more visible. Our hope is that at least some readers will catch the vision and pay it forward through their own giving to others. Mercy is a powerful antidote to transactional thinking. Mercy is a demonstration of God's givingness, the foundation stone of a gift economy, and a vital tool for undermining our enchantment with the exchange economy. Mercy may be the scissors that cut the curtain of illusion from top to bottom so that we can once again see the hidden treasure of gift-giving. Because it is unexpected in the context of an exchange economy, the gift of mercy has the disruptive potential to reveal the centrality of giving in human experience and to save us from the tyranny of transactional thinking. To avoid a misunderstanding about gifts and transactions, I need to clarify my use of the word reciprocity. In some of the literature about gifts, reciprocity is understood in terms of a bi-directional exchange. I give to you, and you reciprocate by giving to me, and we both understand the mutual obligation implied by the transaction. In drawing on the concept of gift economy, however, I will normally use the phrase network of reciprocity which means something quite different. Participants in a gift economy form a tapestry of relationships in which giving and receiving are uncoupled. In a network of reciprocity, giving is undertaken freely and without any requirement for repayment. The community shares its abundance, quote, in an endless choreography of generosity and care, unquote, ensuring that all can flourish together. Experiencing this nourishing circularity leaves an an entirely different flavour from transactional exchange. God is the architect of that network of reciprocity, and God invites us into that web of love, grace and mercy. Notice that 1 John 4.11 says, Since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. End quote. This instruction to pass on the love we receive is the biblical foundation for a pay-it-forward strategy. The verse does not say, since God loved us, we ought to love God back. God's love is a gift to be passed on rather than a debt to be repaid. Similarly, Paul wrote that, quote, like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. From 1 Peter 4.10. In other words, we receive God's grace as stewards rather than owners or debtors and are expected to share the gift with others. God is also a participant in the network of reciprocity. God donates to us and also receives from us within that circular reciprocity. That may sound controversial because God surely needs nothing from us. God is not, quote, served by human hands as though he needed anything, Acts 17.25. But the fact that God does not need anything from us does not mean that God does not receive anything from us. God receives our praise, even though if we did not give our praise, the very earth would call out its praise instead. God receives our prayers, 
and David suggests that God even collects our tears. Nicodemus provided the tomb for Jesus. A Samaritan woman gave Jesus water. A woman washed Jesus' feet with her hair. Surely as a mother, Mary showed mercy to her son. According to Jesus, when we do good or bad to those in need, God counts it as though we did it to God. In all of these ways, the Bible shows God receiving from people. Subheading. Mercy is extreme kindness. The world desperately needs more kindness. Kindness is a fundamental need for any stable human society and a virtue we are sorely missing. Many voices today are calling for a recovery of kindness, empathy, gratitude and tolerance. Although those voices are important, in this book I start with an assumption of kindness as the base level. Civilization has not survived and cannot survive without people helping each other, smiling, apologizing, mentoring, and by being honest, gentle, and caring toward each other. Many of those acts may be motivated by compassion and offered as gifts. Even so, they may be acts of kindness without being acts of mercy. Followers of Jesus are called to something more. That is why I define mercy as extreme kindness. Mercy goes beyond what is morally required, what can be reasonably expected, or what is essential to social stability. I suggested a situation earlier where a group of refugees were dying for lack of water, and someone responded compassionately by providing tankers of water without cost to the refugees. To add another nuance to that scene, compare the case where the person providing the water paid for it out of their own savings to the case where the person applied for a government grant that covered the costs. In both cases, the motive is the same. But we are more likely to think of the latter case as simply kindness. The person has arranged to help, but at no great personal cost. The self-sacrifice in the former case, however, goes beyond what anyone could ethically require. By acting above and beyond what could be expected, the person has acted with true mercy. I use the word extreme with caution, because mercy can still be shown by people who apparently have nothing to give. The extremity of kindness can be situated along many dimensions. It may be sacrificial, entailing personal risk, offered towards an enemy or towards someone who everyone else dismisses. It may be extravagant in its persistence or generosity. But extreme does not mean expensive, as though only the rich, got-it-all-together, healthy, successful people can afford to show mercy. We dishonour and disempower too many people if we ever imply that the poor or broken cannot show mercy. Mercy is not charity in the sense of giving as much money as you can. As Jesus once observed, two small copper coins can be a greater gift than wads of hundred-dollar bills. The size of the gift does not define mercy, but the size of the heart and the nature of the giving. Mercy is like this. Once there was a woman walking from Jerusalem to Jericho when she fell into the hands of some robbers who beat her until she was almost dead. They were laughing at her when suddenly a priest came into view. The robbers freaked out and ran away, but one tripped and was trampled by the priest's horse as he too tried to get away from the scene as quickly as possible. The woman passed out, but when she came to, the injured robber still lay there, 
20 metres away, screaming in agony. After she slowly and painfully crawled over to him, she could see the massive amount of blood that he'd already lost pooled around him. Unable to do anything else, she lifted his head onto her leg and stroked his brow until he died. The woman's kindness was simple and inexpensive, yet in the context surprising and extreme. Mercy is located not in the cost of the gift, but in the heartfelt way she affirmed the dying man's worth. Maybe surprising is just as good an adjective as extreme. Subheading, why this definition? The term mercy has been interpreted in many ways and often covers a much broader concept than what my definition based on compassion, gift and extreme kindness allows. From one perspective, any definition of mercy will be inadequate because it is more of a visceral than an intellectual concept. Nevertheless, at the risk of over-intellectualizing, I want to avoid equating mercy with everything that is loving, good or godly. If mercy is taken to encompass too much, then it ends up meaning nothing. The idea that mercy is motivated by compassion situates mercy within the context of need and clarifies the relational motivation that responds to that need. Defining mercy as a gift moves the concept out of the economy of exchange and into the ecology of love, out of the realm of bilateral transactions and into a network of reciprocity. Defining mercy as extreme kindness repositions it from being merely nice to being unexpected and extravagant. People who think that mercy is nice have most likely not understood mercy at all. Mercy is neither passive nor weak, but rather proactive, bold and risky. Mercy is disruptive and outrageous to the point of being scandalous. Mercy takes human needs seriously, as it does evil and human brokenness. Mercy does not let people off the hook or sweep evil under the rug. But neither does mercy turn its back on human needs or run away from evil. Mercy does not confront evil with evil, as though the most powerful will win. It does not punish violence by imposing another form of violence. On the contrary, aren't we all familiar with cases of mercy that deny or even reverse an established power structure? What of the mercy shown by an oppressed group to their oppressors, patiently waiting in hope for the oppressor to find their own humanity? What of a child caring for an alcoholic parent, bearing their abuse while daring to believe that something good may yet be loved back into wholeness? Mercy plays a vital role within a network of reciprocity. The network itself is a fabric woven with threads of kindness, generosity and mutual care. Regardless of how strong such fabric may be, there will still be broken threads that can lead to gaping holes. People trip up physically or relationally. They become sick and unable to give. They become fearful and unable to receive. They will be hurt and will hurt others. The job of mercy is to repair the fabric so that those in need do not become disconnected from the nurturing community. A tapestry protected by mercy can be seen not so much in the beauty of the front face, but in the tangle of knots on the underside that have repaired the many broken threads. We need more people committed to tying knots.
You might disagree with this way of defining mercy, but there is something which is central to God's character, central to the gospel, central to God's intention to reconcile all things in heaven and earth, central to the possibility of human community, and consequently central to the project of human flourishing. That something is a gift. It is a form of extreme kindness. It is motivated not by duty or any external obligation, but by compassion. I cannot think of a more appropriate word for that something than mercy. I invite you while reading this book to be open to that something so that the transformative potential of mercy seeps through for you too. Subheading. Something to consider. Which aspect of mercy, compassion, gift or extreme kindness most resonates with you? Which aspect most challenges you? This chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.